Andrew Womack Ministries presents this message titled, The Love Series Part 2. We pray that the Word of God will come alive in your heart as you listen. This is tape number two in the Love Series, and this is the conclusion of Thursday evening, August the 28th message, and then we'll also put on Friday morning's message, August the 29th, 1980. Out of Hebrews chapter 8, it says in verse 10, For this is the commandment that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people, and they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Praise God. That says that he will be merciful to our unrighteousness. Now that would sound like blasphemy if you didn't read it out of the Bible, wouldn't it? Most of us have been taught, man, God is hard on sin. I was brought up in a denomination that said, Brother, God hates sin. And the guy used to pound on the pulpit and scream and holler and get red in the face. My mother's seen that. I'm talking about over there at Calvary Hill. I saw a guy one time stand up on, the, the, on this part of the pulpit right here. He stood on this and bent over and grabbed the mic, yelling and hollering, God hates sin, boy, and beating and pounding on it. Sin's got to be judged. If you're sinning, God's wrath's going to fall on you. And that's basically, if you've been religious, every last one of us have heard that. And every last one of us have accepted that. And so what happens when we sin? We think God's mad at us. We think God's displeased with us. How could God give us anything? And we come under all that condemnation. Well, I agree God hates sin. And I agree that sin's got to be judged. But you see, what that guy was missing is that sin has been judged in the flesh of the Lord Jesus. And because I've come under that covenant, God is now merciful to my unrighteousness and my sins and iniquities he'll remember no more. It's just the opposite of what the old religious realm has crammed down our throat. People think that we're going to get something from God because we deserve it. Did you know when you start telling people that you've seen blind eyes open and people raised from the dead and deaf ears open and when you share something like that, some people look at you like, brother, you know, they just can't believe that I've seen something like that happen because I'm still normal. And because I hadn't sprouted wings and because I don't go around with my hands folded and I don't have a starry look in my eyes and they really expect that somebody like that has just passed on into another realm. Y'all understand what I'm talking about? They really do. They think that that's something special. What they're thinking is they think that the reason that happened was because of your holiness. And they think, boy, you must have reached another realm that none of the rest of us have come into. Well, I guarantee you what, brothers and sisters, God never did anything because of your holiness. Now, we shake our head and say, yeah, I know that, but when it comes time to us believe in God, nearly every last one of us immediately go to the Lord with our list of qualifications. Lord, I've been going to church, and Lord, I've been giving, and I've tithed, and I've witnessed, and I've been praying, and I've been fasting. Lord, please give it to me. And that's the reason you aren't getting anything, because you're going to God with your list of qualifications instead of saying through who Jesus is. It doesn't matter if you're better than I am. Who wants to be the best person that ever got denied a request from the Lord? Amen. You aren't going to get anything on your own except what you deserve, which is piddling little. Praise God. 
And the truth is, you know, I got an expression, this has just blessed me all over, that God never has had anybody who is qualified working for him yet. That blesses me. But you know, now, when I say that, everybody says, well, you know, surely that's true. But in actuality, we don't really understand that. Because most of us immediately look to ourselves and to our qualifications on whether God's going to use us. That's not love, brothers and sisters. That's not God's relationship. God says that he forgot your sins and iniquities. He took them away. God's not dealing with you according to what you deserve, according to all of these things. And that is completely contrary to what most of us have been taught in religion. It wars against love. You know, basically what we're talking about tonight, I tried not to get off on this because if I do, I'm not going to never get off of it through the rest of this meeting because this is something that is so contradictory to what we've all been taught that it takes a tremendous amount of explanation. But what we're basically talking about is the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The Old Covenant was a covenant of law and of works. You do this, and you do this, and you do this, and I will do this. But under the New Covenant, the New Covenant, Christianity differs from all the rest of that in the fact that he said, I'll just come and do it all for you. Jesus came and died for us was punished for us, rose for us, lives for us, does everything, and all we've got to do is receive. And it's different. There's a difference between the Old and the New Covenants. But most of what is preached in religion, 99.9% .9 of religion today, is telling us laws. It's telling us legalism. It's telling us things that we've got to do. And did you know that we don't differ in that sense from any other religion of the world? And that's sad to say, because Christianity is not a religion. Christianity is a person. It's a reality. It's someone who comes and lives on the inside of you. But you see, the Buddhists or the Muslims, they've got a religion. They sit here and they do this, and they do this, and they do this, and then when they stand before God, they say, Lord, look what I've done. Is it enough? And did you know they're trying to seek the true God? They believe in one God. Muslims do. They're trying to seek a true God, but they aren't going through Jesus. They're going through their efforts. And did you know their efforts are better than yours? A Muslim lives a holier life than I'd say nearly everybody in here. They wouldn't dare be caught dead doing a lot of the things that so-called Christians do today. I guarantee you. And yet, they're going to wind up short because they are basing it on their works. They may be better than I am, but they aren't as good as Jesus. They aren't perfect, and God demands perfection. If you aren't perfect, then you have to have somebody who was. Apply what they did to your account. And that's what Christianity is. You see, religion is man doing this and this and this and saying, God, is it enough? Christianity is God coming down and doing it for us and saying, here it is, receive it. And that's the difference. And sad to say, most religious people today have not entered into Christianity. They're still operating in religion. They're still sitting here doing and doing and doing and doing and doing, trying to get God to do for them. That's not love. That's not love. Love has to be received. You know, to operate in love, you've got to learn how to receive. One of the hardest things that I ever did in all of my life was to learn how to receive. Matter of fact, I'm still learning. I've still had problems over receiving an offering because I'd like to pay you to let me come minister to you, amen. When somebody first started offering me money to come preach the gospel, I thought, boy, that's the greatest thing there was. I'd pay somebody to let me go preach, and they're going to pay me. 
I'd like to pay you, but that's not the way that it works. God says those that preach the gospel should live of the gospel, and one of the hardest things I ever did was to start learning how to receive somebody given to me. And I'm still having problems. I'm still getting to where I take it, amen, without apologizing for it. But I remember the first time somebody tried to give me money. My wife and I had prayed for it. We were on our way home from Denton, Texas, back to Dallas, Texas, and we didn't have enough gas to get there. I knew that I knew in the natural we were going to run out of gas. I was believing God to put gas in that car. I had to stop by and give a message to a guy. And that morning we had prayed and believed the Lord for some money for some gas. And I stopped by and gave this message to this guy. I had known him for about three or four years, and the first time ever in all of his life, he said, Andy, how y'all doing? You got groceries? You need any money? And he looked at me, and I said, Oh, we're doing fine, Marion. And I just, you know, and as soon as I said, We're doing fine, boy, I stopped, and it startled me because I realized, Man, I've been praying for this money. And anyway, he apparently was able to see something in me, and so he gave me $10. And I looked at him, I said, man, I can't take this. And I tried to give it back to him. And he saw how I was acting, he gave me another 10 or 5 or something. <laughs> and anyway, I finally left there with enough gas to get home. And it was a definite answer from God, but I nearly forced that guy to take it back. I tried not to take it. And, you know, really, that's basically the way people are. If I was to go up and say, here, here's $100, would you take this $100? Some of you do it. <laughs> but, you know, most people wouldn't do that. Most people would immediately say, oh, brother, you, you know. Well, I remember I, I went down to some people that we were ministering in their home holding Bible studies, and we had a, a, a beef and a half given to us and two hogs. And so, man, I gave away one whole beef in one day, just distributing it to everybody I could find. And I took a beef down to this uh, guy's house and gave him a, well, he, he was a rancher. I, I took pork to him because he didn't have any pork. And I took him all of this pork, and they just nearly wouldn't receive it. They said, you're a preacher. Said, we're supposed to give to you. You can't give to us. And they just wouldn't receive it. And I nearly, I finally had to tell them, look, you're going to steal a blessing from me if you don't let me give. And they finally accepted it, but it was hard for them to receive. And that's the way most people are. They say, oh, I couldn't do that. If you used to give them $100, let me go out and do something for you. Let me come down to the ministries and duplicate some tapes. Let me do something to earn this. You just can't go give me $100. That's the way that human nature is, but that's not love. Love gives unconditionally, and love doesn't give just so that it can get. And because of this, we have hindered the love of God from flowing in our life because we have not freely received the love of the Lord. What kind of relationship do you think Jamie and I would have? if she felt like she had to do something to earn me providing for her. And if I wanted to take her out to eat somewhere, oh, you can't take me out. I didn't even do that extra load of wash this week. You couldn't do that for me. And I hadn't got the bathrooms cleaned yet. Oh, please, oh, let me go. Let me go in and clean the bathrooms and let me go wash the clothes and everything before you take me out. If that's the attitude she had, did you know that that would eventually destroy a relationship because that's not love? I want to give to her not because she's been cleaning the bathrooms and washing the clothes and making the beds and doing things like that. I want to give because I love her. And if a person doesn't receive that love, did you know that eventually the person who's wanting to extend that love will have to stop because it isn't love anymore. It's not a free gift if the person continually feels like they're earning it all of the time. Everybody follow that thinking? Well, now this is exactly, see, what's been happening with us and the Father. The Father wants to freely give. He says, whatsoever you ask the Father in my name, I'll give it to you. 
That's what the Lord Jesus said. But then here we come along and we start saying, Lord, have I done enough? And he says, just get it through who Jesus is. And then we start having to fast and pray and do all of these things to earn it. And he keeps saying, just in the name of Jesus is where it's at. And we haven't rested in that. And we have been breaking down the relationship of love. Most Christians have not freely received the love of God. We're continually trying to give back unto God. We know that we're supposed to give love to God, so we're continually trying to tell the Lord, I love you, I love you. We feel condemned if we don't minister and tell the Lord how much we love Him. But did you know one reason that the love isn't spontaneous? is because we aren't receiving. If you receive the love of God and open up and just freely receive it and say, Father, thank you that you love me. I know I'm a bum and don't deserve it, and praise God that you love me anyway. Man, when you look at it that way and when you just freely receive the love that God gets and when He starts ministering love to you and supplying your needs and healing you, not because you deserve to be healed, prospering you, not because you're worthy to be prospered, but because you've accepted it from the Lord Jesus, when you start receiving that way, you know the first thing that comes out. Praise God. Lord, I love you. Love will begin to flow out from you. Faith will begin to flow. We wouldn't have to try and pump up all of this stuff so much if we would just freely receive from the Lord. And sad to say, religion has got things totally out of balance because, you see, there is a responsibility. We do have certain things that we are supposed to do. There are certain things to receive in, uh, from the Lord. But religion has emphasized what we do. You do this. You do this. You do this. And instead, Christianity ought to be emphasizing what Jesus has done for us and freely receiving. When you go to freely receiving from the Lord, brothers and sisters, I guarantee you God will get your service. If God can get you to open up your heart and just allow Jesus to come in and love you and begin to minister unto you, you won't ever have to tell that person to go out and serve God. I guarantee you it'll be a byproduct. It really will. My wife loves me, and because she's received my love, then I don't have to sit there and tell her to go clean the house and do this and do this. She does that because she loves me, and she really looks at it as being a ministry. I remember when we first got married, she's folding my clothes, sitting there just praising God. And I was asking her what happened. She says, I'm just so thankful that I'm your helpmate and that I can fold your clothes and clean your house and do things like that. Well, I nearly blew my mind. That wasn't my calling. Amen. <laughs> But that's the way that she looks at it, and it's because of love. Amen? And that's what God wants from us is love. Love. If all God wanted was your service, God could have had angels do it a lot better than you did. But angels, you see, don't have the free love. They haven't fallen. The ones that have fallen, amen, can't serve him. But the ones that haven't fallen, they don't know what love is in the sense that you and I know what it is. It's not free. It's not from their heart. God chose you and me to serve him. Why? Not because he just wants your service. That is something that he wants. I praise God that my house is taken care of. We'd be deficient if Jamie didn't do her part in our household. But that's not the reason I married her. I married her for the love relationship. And brothers and sisters, God married you. He redeemed you for the love relationship. And God loves you. God is a God of love. And if you would just open up and receive it, you could receive from God on the basis of love and not on the basis of what you've done. And boy, it'll set you free because none of us have done good enough. But we have received the love of the Lord. The love of God is in us. It may not be functional within us, but it is there. 
And if you'll go back and receive this love, praise God, I promise you, that love will begin to set you free. Also, here's another byproduct of love. Strife is the opposite of love. And I've heard medical doctors say that strife, hatred, jealousy, fear, things like that in a human body causes over 90-something percent of human sickness today. I've heard medical doctors on TV talk about that, that if they could control those spiritual forces of strife specifically is the main one, then they can control over 90% of sicknesses. Did you know that the body is directly related to spiritual forces going on on the inside of you? It really is. And to prove that, you know, you've seen, I heard about Mary, Queen of Scots, who was going to be executed, and the day before she was executed, they put her in the dungeon, and that night she had long, flowing red hair, and in the morning her hair was totally white. She had every hair on her head white because of fear. Fear affected the physical body like that. You can see how strife and a hard life affects a person's faith, wrinkles. And you can see stress on a person's face. You know what? And I mean, that's just a common observation. But even medical science is beginning to prove that over 90% of sickness is directly related to how you feel on the inside. See, the Bible says this, a merry heart doeth good like a medicine. It's the same principle. It says that the Word of God is health to all thy flesh and life to them that find it in Proverbs chapter 4. The Scripture says the exact same thing. And when we begin to operate in our relationship of love, brothers and sisters, I guarantee you we wouldn't even fight 90% of the sickness that we have. You know what? Much of the sick, I'm convinced, and I'm going to share this as andeology, but I believe it's from the words. You can take it and, ju and justify it on your own. But I have yet to ever find a case of cancer that did not have as a root cause strife and bitterness. Never yet have I seen a case of cancer. We were at a church just this last week where I said that. And did you know they came up and shared an example with me that there was a couple in that church that got in strife and really let the pastor have it. And they left that church in strife, and within a week, the woman came down with leukemia. And I'm not, God didn't put that on her, but I'm saying that strife generated that sickness in her body. And what cancer is, basically, is the cells destroying the other cells. It's just the body functioning, but functioning out of order. And see, that's exactly what the Scripture says out of James chapter 3, that where envy and strife is, there's confusion in every evil work. And brothers and sisters, we need to realize that not only would love open us up to the Lord, but it would take care of your emotions. All of that bitterness, that hurt, that strife, and things like this would be out. And as love begins to flow, you'd find peace flowing within you. There wouldn't be such thing as tension and headaches and upset stomach and ulcers, and I believe that it goes much further than that. I don't believe that you'd be sitting here fighting cancer off and doing a lot of the things that you're doing because love would be flowing through you. Amen? God made you to operate in love. God is love. And when God created mankind, God created mankind to live a life of love. That's what you are made to work on. Amen? It's just like a car is made to run on gasoline. And you go to sticking water in the gas tank, something's going to go wrong. And that's what's happened. God made us to operate on love and peace and fellowship with God. And because we've missed it, brothers and sisters, that's the reason that our old vehicle's got so many problems in it. 
When you start receiving love, I've, me I've seen a lot of people in our meetings just open up and all of a sudden realize that God loves them and immediately, boy, I mean all kinds of physical maladies and problems and cares and, and problems sleeping and things like that, they just fall away. They fall away because love takes away those forces. Brothers and sisters, we need to receive love from God. We've been made to think that God's mad at us, that God's hard on us. Most Christians are made to think that God loves you more while you're a sinner than he does once you become a Christian. Do you know that? You know what I mean by that? I mean by that that while you're a sinner, you can go up to one of these dopers and you'll sit there and tell them, oh, brother, it doesn't matter what you've done. They're sitting there in the gutter, amen, filthy, dirty, stinking, and everything, and you can go up and put your arm around them and say, God loves you just like you are, just as I am, without one plea. And you sit there and tell that person that. And they'll come and they'll get saved. Man, everything's fine. They accepted Jesus, came out of the pits because somebody told them God's love was unconditional and God loved them just like they were. And that was a strong enough force to draw them out of the gutter right into the uh, acceptance in the arms of the Lord. And then they go along for a little while and they run into a problem and they go back to that same person that led them to the Lord and say, what's wrong? How come I'm not having the joy that I should? That same person says, it's sin, brother. God won't fellowship with you if you got sin in your life. They quit doping, they quit drinking, carousing, cussing, chewing, dipping, and all this kind of stuff. And they're sitting here trying to live the best they can. They make a mistake. God loved them while they was in the gutter, but now they made a mistake. And God's going to cut them off and let them just go. Brother, God's not going to fellowship with your sin. That's not what the Scripture says, amen. The Scripture says out of Romans chapter 5, verse 8, But God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us, but it doesn't stop there. The next verse says, Much more then, being now justified by his grace, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Much more now that I'm a born-again believer is God's love on me. If I could go back and believe that while I was in the pits of the devil, and legally his, I mean the devil had legal rights to oppress me. The devil had every right that there was to keep me from being born again. And if I could believe for God to save me out of a mess like that, why can't I believe God to heal my body now? Man, I'm his. I've got rights and privileges. I've got some things that have been decreed to me. I'm a joint heir. I ought to much more now be able to believe for healing, for deliverance, for prosperity, for answered prayer than I was to be saved. Amen? But most people are able to believe for being saved more than they are for all these other things. Why? Because we haven't been taught right. We've not seen the unconditional love that God has given to us, and because of it, most of us are living under condemnation. There's some people who live right here in Colorado Springs that when we were holding a meeting over here at the Ramada Inn, we were ministering something along these lines. And the lady came and she said that she, she's, I think, 70-something years old, and she said that she had been a Christian since she was about six years old, and for the first time in her life, she understood that God had totally, totally, totally forgiven her sins. Isn't that a shame? Been a Christian for 50-something years, and for the first time, she really understood how much she was totally forgiven. And I hate to say this, but I'd say that's probably the majority of the people in this room, myself included, have never understood the unconditional and how completely God has forgiven and cleansed us. And we are the ones that are punishing ourselves. 
We're the ones that are separating ourselves from God, not God separating us. We're under condemnation thinking God couldn't love me when the whole time God loves you more than you could ever receive. And if you could open up and begin to receive the love that God has for you immediately, immediately, the Scripture says, faith would work by love. You'd start saying, praise God, I know God loves me so much that there is no doubt but what God's going to heal me, amen. There is no doubt, there is no fear in me but that God's going to supply my needs because I know how complete and how unconditional His love is. If you understood that, it would be impossible for you to doubt. I know how much Jamie loves me, and I know that if Jamie had power to heal me, to prosper me, to do anything, I don't have to wonder, would Jamie do it? Because I know where Jamie and I stand, praise God. And there's just nobody that could make me. I don't care how much you came around and told me. You couldn't make me believe that she is willing for me to suffer and die with the cancer and go through torture. I know better. And yet somehow we've got the impression that God loves us less and that God would let us just sit there and suffer and go through these things. We need to get rid of that. We need to start getting back to some basics and start seeing how much God loves us. And boy, if you'll do this, I promise you, it'll quicken faith on the inside of you. Miracles will begin to work. Amen? Now, I've raised more questions tonight than what I've answered. And so you're going to have to keep coming to get these answers. That is the conclusion of the Thursday evening service, and now this is the beginning of the Friday morning service, August the 29th, 1980. As we've already shared, a lot of us, when we get saved... We see our responsibility and what we're supposed to be doing, and that's all that we see. And we don't really sit down and receive the love that God has for us. And it's important. Christians need to learn just to sit down and receive how much God loves us. Do you know one of the first prophecies that I ever had? I was praying in tongues, and I asked the Lord to interpret it. And the first thing that came out of my mouth was, that, Andy, I love you. And I started to stop and say, that couldn't be the Lord. Because I was so conditioned that, boy, the Lord, if he was to appear to me, it'd certainly, you know, upbraid me for my unbelief and jump on me and tell me where I'd missed it and all of these kind of things. And the more I thought about it, I said, well, why wouldn't the Lord love me, amen? He's already died and given himself for me. And I had another experience when I was still back in Egypt in the Baptist church. And uh, we used to drive 40 miles to church. And my mother and I'd spend the afternoon over there. And we'd go to this church and, and then we'd... Uh, stay with these people in the afternoon and anyway I was staying in this uh, house and one afternoon I got real sleepy and so they offered me their daughter's bedroom upstairs to go to bed in so I went and laid down on the bed and went to sleep and this daughter was um, into Satan worship and things like this she didn't want anything to do with God's people and so she stayed away from the house completely when she knew that on Sunday when somebody was coming over so anyway, I didn't expect to see her coming back. And I'd been asleep, I don't know how long, but anyway, I heard the door open up on that room. And uh, when I did, I woke up. I was wide awake, but I didn't open my eyes and I didn't move, but I heard the door open. And I thought, well, it must be that girl coming back. She had to get something out of her room. And I knew how she disliked anybody that had to do with the Lord. And so anyway, I thought I'd just play possum, amen, and sleep through the whole thing. And uh, so I listened and... They walked around in there for a while, and then they walked up, and they were standing close to the bed, and then they sat down on the edge of the bed. And, boy, I mean, I, I kept my eyes closed through that. But finally, they put their arm across the bed, you know, like how you lean across the person. They were sitting beside me, and they put their arm across the bed like that, and I could feel that. And it was all I could do, but by then I couldn't open my eyes, see. I put myself in a position where I was afraid of what I'd see. 
And I was just laying there, and then they reached over and they kissed me. And boy, when that happened, I opened my eyes. I couldn't refrain myself any longer. And I looked, and there wasn't anybody there. I mean, there wasn't anybody in the room. The door was closed. And yet I know, I mean, you could feel a person sitting on the bed with you. And my first thought was, that's the Lord. It's got to be the Lord. And then my second thought was, that couldn't be the Lord. The Lord wouldn't come in here and kiss me if he was to walk into our room. And then, you know, I got to thinking the same thing. And I said, why wouldn't the Lord come in and kiss me? He died for me. How come he wouldn't do something like that? And he just really began to minister to me. But, you know, it took me a long time to get to a point where I could receive the love of God because I was so conditioned to think that surely if God came, God would just, boy, strike me for something that I'd done. But that's not so. It isn't so. The Lord Jesus does love us. And we are so hard to open up and receive the love of God. And then we wonder, why can't we give love to other people? You can't give something you don't have. You've got to open up and first of all start receiving the fact that God loves you just like you are. You sorry, old rotten, no good thing. Amen. God loves you just like you are. When you can begin to start receiving that and truly letting God love you, then you can start ministering it back to other people. And it's not something that you have to pump up. It's not something that you have to sit here and force. It's something that comes flowing out of you because God is putting it into you in an abundance. But you see, we haven't really kept the lines open between us and the Lord. The love hasn't been flowing to us. Most Christians come to a service like this and we feel like we've got to just pour out our heart and praise God and start loving God. That's good. And amen, if you don't feel like it, do it anyway. I'm not telling you that that's wrong, but I'm saying that, you know, it should be just an overflow. The Bible says that out of uh, John chapter 7, that out of your belly shall flow rivers of living water. It ought to just be flowing out of us. And yet most of us like one of these old pumps, you know, that you have to just sit there and crank and crank and crank and crank and finally you have to go prime the thing before you get any water out of it. And that's the way most of us have been. Boy, we've got to come into a service and you've got to have somebody up here just doing uh, acrobatics, you know, to get you excited and to get you praising God. And you've got to have a Jericho mark to get people woke up and things like this. Well, it shouldn't be that way. Boy, we ought to be able to come in here and at the drop of a hat, boy, just begin to worship God and praise and joy flowing out of us because it's been in there in abundance. But one of the reasons that it hadn't flowed that way is because we don't sit and let God minister His love to us. And it's necessary. Amen? It is vitally necessary. You start letting God minister His love to you and you'll find out that you won't have to sit here and prime your pump. Amen? It'll just come flowing out of you. It'll come flowing out of you. We were ministering something along these lines up in Longmont this last week. And the man who was a pastor there, well, they had all kinds of problems. They got a $3,000 a month payment on this place that they took over, and he's only got 30 people in his church. They took over a bowling alley. And they're, I mean, it's a tremendous facility. They took a step of faith. And he's got $3,000 a month overhead and $1,500 a month income. And he's been making all the rest of it up out of his pocket. He's been fighting all kinds of problems. They've had to move three times. They had somebody give them a house, and they moved into it, and then the people took it back. So they moved three times in a month's time. They got seven kids. They're taking care of an extra kid that somebody dumped on them when he was about five weeks old, and they've had him since he's five weeks old. He's seven now. And they had a 97-year-old lady that they took in and that they're taking care of. And all of this, plus all of the moves, plus people rejecting them, plus the normal pressures of ministering the Word, and plus on top of that, while we were there, his daughter was scheduled to get married on Saturday, and she eloped on uh, Tuesday morning, left. And... Uh, Anyway, with all of these things beginning to happen, he was receiving the Word, and he was getting set free. And did you know that he woke up on Tuesday morning after two days of ministry? He woke himself up laughing and praising God. And the joy of the Lord flowed out of him. He was just praising God, so excited. He woke himself up laughing. Isn't that good? 
Well, I tell you, that's the joy of the Lord. And that guy just was receiving. And you don't have to pump that up. He didn't get up and go through any calisthenics. We had a guy come minister one time. And this guy's a good brother. Since then, he's grown a lot. Amen. We're all growing. But this guy came and stayed with us. And he traveled our circuit down to southeastern Colorado, New Mexico, and Oklahoma with us for a week and ministered. And... Uh, that guy, it just amazed me. He was single, and he'd stay in the basement. And for over an hour every morning, he'd get up, and I know exactly what he's doing because I'd heard the same tapes he had heard about how you got to confess the Word and about how to meditate means to speak it louder and louder and louder. And he would start off confessing, I'm the righteousness of God in Christ, and he'd walk, and then he'd get louder, and finally he'd be screaming and shouting and beating the walls, I'm the righteousness of God in Christ. And he went through this ordeal every day to get himself going. Now, the principle is good. The principle is real good, and that is we've got to confess the Word, and it's good to discipline yourself and spend time every morning. But, you know, it reminded me of somebody who was a drunk, and they had to have their first cup of coffee, or they had to have a pepper-upper or something to get them going every morning. It shouldn't be that you have to get up and just like a drunk, you know, give yourself a shot every morning. It ought to be something that just flows out of you. And I thought that if that guy would have had to get up and minister to somebody before he had his hour sitting there screaming and shouting the Word, he would have been totally ineffective. And, you know, since then, he's staying down on a ranch in uh, Kenton, Oklahoma, with some people. And those people have been good for him because they just are country folk. They don't know much of anything except they just love the Lord. And it flows out of them 24 hours a day. And I went down and saw that guy, and he's really grown. He's really grown. He's just getting a consistency. It's getting in his heart to such a degree that it doesn't have to be pumped out. And I'm not saying he shouldn't do those things, but I'm saying you shouldn't have to have a formula that you follow every time. It ought to be something that is just spontaneous and flowing out of you. Amen? And that's what will happen as we begin to let God minister to us. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't minister back to the Lord. We should. But, you know, you ought to let God minister to you. You need to let God minister to you. And if you don't do that, you aren't going to be much giving your praise and worship back unless it comes flowing out of your heart. So, anyway, that's, that's what excites me about this is that the fact that most Christians have never really sat down and thought about how much God loves us. It's always how much we should love God. And this will set you free. Amen? It'll really help you. We've been ministering out of Ephesians chapter 5. And last night we went down through verse 28. And in verse 29 the scripture says, For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it. Well, let me see. We didn't read verse 28. Let's back up. It says, So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. Now, right here, this says that we ought to love our wives even as our own bodies. He that loves his wife loves himself. You could turn that verse around and say that if you do not love your wife, you do not love yourself. And did you know that's a true statement? I was talking to a lady last night, the one that we called up and ministered to, and she had had some problems. It was her husband that we were prophesying to about, and boy, it really rung home with her. She really got touched last night. But her husband is doing some things to her that uh, is very ungodly, do it so in strife, telling her that she's all the problem and doing everything he can to knock her down. And, you know, sometimes we, we think that, that uh, 
that person is doing that just because we're such a rotten individual. But it helps you when you're able to see that the reason that man is doing that or the woman is doing that to the man is because they are so much in turmoil in themselves. They, that's what they're full of, full of. They're full of strife. They're full of hatred. They don't love themselves. They hate themselves. They hate the mess that they're in. And as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. They're just dispensing what they feel. And when you look at it that way, you can see a person come against you with all kinds of hatred and you can look right past what they're saying and see that, Lord, I understand the reason they're doing this because they're so full of hate themselves. And you can have compassion and say, God, minister to that person. It's really important that you recognize that. It doesn't matter what a person says out their mouth. They may say, oh, boy, I'm having a great time. If they aren't serving God, the Bible says that there is no rest, saith my God, to the wicked. The wicked are not having rest. I don't care if they're sitting out here saying, oh, man, this is the life. We're really living it up. How many of you ever lived it up and told everybody you was having a great time? And then you got saved, found out how miserable you'd been. Anybody ever been like that? Praise God, we all know that. And it, you just don't go by what people say. You go by what God's Word says. A person is miserable on the inside if they aren't serving God. And if you'd recognize this, that when a man isn't loving his wife, it's because he doesn't love himself. Because that is the relationship that God has given us. A man's wife is part of himself. We, are, we too have become one flesh. Well, let's turn around this and put it with the Lord. If the Lord didn't love us, and if the Lord was not moving to supply our needs the way so many people have been led to believe today, then God wouldn't love himself. Because we are part of his flesh and of his body and of his bones, is what it says right there in Ephesians chapter 5. Now, we know that the Lord God is going to supply Jesus needs, amen. Anything that the Lord Jesus wants, we got total confidence that Jesus will get it. Well, we are of his flesh and of his body and of his bones. And in the same sense as God the Father would always never refuse anything to Jesus, God the Father will never refuse anything to us. Amen? Well, I got to teach it. I don't know if you, I haven't got time to get off on this, but if you've never heard the tape entitled, What to Do When Your Prayers Seem Unanswered, you need to get that tape. Because God has answered every prayer that you have ever prayed. And he didn't answer it, no. He answered it. But God is a spirit, and God always gives in the spirit. God moves in the spirit. And whether it comes out of the spiritual realm and manifests into the physical realm is dependent upon you, not upon God. Now, boy, you need to get that tape and learn that because it'll set you free to learn that God has always been faithful. Anytime you ever prayed for a healing, whether you saw your healing manifest or not, it wasn't God that didn't give it. God loves you. And God answers your prayers exactly the same as he answers the prayers of the Lord Jesus because we pray in the name of Jesus. When you say in the name of Jesus, that means you're saying because of who Jesus is. Through his righteousness, through his holiness, through his works, I believe that I receive. I go through Jesus, not through myself. I don't pray in the name of Andrew Womack. If I was to pray in the name of Andrew Womack, I wouldn't get very much. Did you know it? I might get a sickness put on me. That's what I deserve. But praise God, I don't pray in my own name. I say in the name of Jesus, and I've got rights and privileges because I am of his flesh and of his body and of his bones. You see, this relationship of a husband and wife go exactly back together. A wife has certain, has certain uh, privileges and rights that have been given her by being married to that man. She even changes her name. You know the reason for that? Look over here in Genesis chapter 5. Genesis chapter, you know, there's a lot of things that we do that's based on God principles. God put certain principles in the earth that even though man is still as corrupt as they are, that, you know, we still hadn't stomped out all of God's intervention in mankind's affairs. God still has a lot of things that are flowing in this earth that we don't even understand why they were. But in Genesis chapter 5 verse 1 it says, This 
is the book of the generations of Adam in the day that God created man in the likeness of God made he him. Male and female created he them and blessed them and called their name Adam in the day when they were created. Here were two people and yet God called two people's name Adam. He didn't say this is Adam and this is Eve. God looked at both of them. He called Eve Adam because Eve was of his flesh and of his body and of his bones. That's exactly how one God saw him. God dealt with them as one person. God called them Adam. Adam named Eve. God didn't name Eve. Adam named Eve. God called their name Adam. And when a woman marries a man, that's exactly what happens. A woman drops her name and takes on the name of a man. It's the same principle, symbolizing again how we become one. And God deals with this as one. Nobody can have the effect on a person as their mate. Nobody. I could pray and intercede for you. My prayers may be effectual, but I couldn't have one thousandth the effect on a person as you do because you are one in the eyes of God with that person. You can sanctify them and accomplish things in their life that I could never do through my prayer and intercession. God sees us one that much. Well, we've become one with the Lord Jesus. Out of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17, the Scripture says, They that are joined unto the Lord are one spirit. My spirit is one with the Father, with the Lord Jesus. The Bible says out of Romans chapter 8, verse 9, Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Did you know that if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you are none of his? Not a spirit that came from Christ, not a spirit like Christ, but you have the Spirit of Christ. When you got born again, God imparted unto you the exact same Spirit that indwells the Lord Jesus Christ. If you don't have it, you aren't born again. What Romans chapter 8, verse 9 says, Your Spirit is identical to the Spirit of the Lord Jesus. It's the same example as when God created Adam and then out of Adam took a rib and from that rib made a woman. That rib was every molecule of that man. If you'll read that over here in Genesis chapter 2, let's look at this since we're close. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help me for him. If you'll drop down to verse 21, The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept and took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. Now that terminology says that the rib that the Lord took made he a woman. It didn't say from the rib which the Lord took made he a woman. He used some of this rib and built a woman around it. You all see what I'm saying through this? He did not take this rib and just make the man's rib one of the ribs in the woman. But out of this rib, he took every cell, every molecule that was in that woman's body and took it all out of that one rib. Every last cell in that woman's body was 100% from that man. Some people say, I just can't understand that. How could God make a whole person out of a rib? Well, how could God take five loaves and two fishes and divide them and feed 5,000 people and have more left when he got through than he did when he started? I don't understand that, but that's just the way God is. God does things like that, amen? God took that one rib and made a woman out of one rib. Now, the point that I'm saying here is that when we get born again, it's the same with us. We are now of his flesh, of his body, 
of his bones. We are molecule for molecule in our spirit, man. This is the only part of you that's saved and changed right now. Your body's not changed and your soulish realm's not changed. Your spirit's a part of you that's saved and completely brand new. And in the spirit realm, we are molecule for molecule, exact duplicate of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians chapter 4 says, God sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, and many, many other scriptures. And so the point that I'm making is that we are now a part of the Lord Jesus. We have rights and privileges. And in the same way as we would expect God the Father to love the Lord Jesus, we have the same love given unto us. See, this is a problem among Christians. They say, how could God love me? Because you see your flesh. You see your problems. You see your mistakes. You see your fallacies, and you say, how could God love me like that? God doesn't look on the outward appearance. The Scripture says man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. John chapter 4, verse 24, God is a spirit, and those that worship God must worship him in spirit and in truth. God deals with your spirit man, and your spirit man is a new creature. It is bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. It is the spirit of the Lord Jesus, and God loves you because you've got a new recreated spirit. It's his bride. Amen? And it's holy, and it's without spot. You need to quit thinking and dealing with yourself as a physical human being, and you need to start seeing who you are in Christ Jesus and see your rights and your privileges and your relationship. Amen? Did you know Jamie's got certain rights? If I've got anything, I don't have all that much in the natural realm, but whatever I've got, she's got rights and privileges to it. Our checking account, she can write a check on it. She can do any of those things because she has taken on my name. She's able to use my name. It's the same thing with the Lord Jesus. We are bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh, and we have his name. We are called by his name. We're Christians. The word Christian means little Christ. I changed my name. I no longer do things in my name. I do things in the name of the Lord Jesus. I have rights and privileges to it. And brothers and sisters, the same love that God the Father has for the Lord Jesus, God the Father has for you. And a lot of people think, oh, God couldn't love me as much as the Lord Jesus. Look what Jesus did. God loves you identical, exactly the way that he loves the Lord Jesus. You want to see that in Scripture? Look over here in John chapter 17. Praise the Lord. John chapter 17 is where Jesus prayed a prayer for us. Where is this? Verse 20 says, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me I have given them. Boy, that's pretty powerful right there, isn't it? The glory that Jesus had, he gave to us. Praise God. That they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. The Lord Jesus, and verse 20 shows you that he's not praying for the New Testament saints that lived back in these days only, but he is praying for those who shall believe on the Lord Jesus through their word. That's you and me. Amen. 
And he says, the love that you have loved me with, Jesus said, the love that you've loved me with, I have given them, and you have loved them in the same way. Brothers and sisters, God loves us every ounce as much as he loves the Lord Jesus. Matter of fact, he sacrificed his son because he loved us so much. Can you see that? And religion hadn't painted it to us that way. Most of us have been sitting there thinking that, boy, the Lord is wanting you to toe the line, and when you get out of line, man, the wrath of God's going to strike. I had a man come to me, and he said, you know, I used to think that God went around with a metal club, and every time I got out of line, man, he zapped me with something. Praise God. We need to start realizing that God loves us, and he's going to deal with us the way that he deals with the Lord Jesus. And, boy, when you start seeing that, faith will rise, won't it? You can start seeing some things happen because God loves us the same way. Let's go back to Ephesians chapter 5 where we were. In Ephesians chapter 5, it says that no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church, for we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. Did you know verse 31 is exactly what the Lord Jesus did for us? The Lord Jesus left his father and came down and became one with us, took on our problems, our physical body, went down and fought the battle for us, left his father and became one with his wife. Amen. To redeem us back unto the father. It's an exact picture of the husband and the wife relationship. Let's look over here in the book of Genesis again at Adam and Eve in chapter 3. In verse 1 of chapter 3, it says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her. Y'all see that? Y'all ever seen that before? A lot of people think Eve ate of the fruit and then found Adam and enticed Adam to eat of it too. Adam was standing there the whole time that this serpent came. Adam saw the whole show. He heard every lie, and Adam didn't say a thing. Adam blew it. Eve gave unto her husband that was with her, and he did eat, and the eyes of them both were open. Now, if you'll remember what we just read, and if you'll turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2 and read the Bible commentary on itself. Amen. You need to let the Bible be a commentary on itself. We're always reading Matthew Henry's commentary or somebody to find out what the Bible said. The Bible will always explain itself. Did you know it? Praise God. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13, the Scripture says, For Adam was first formed, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived. But the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Now that's talking about when Satan came against them and tempted them. Adam was not deceived. Adam knew who it was speaking through the serpent. Adam knew exactly what they were doing. He knew. The, he wasn't deceived thinking they was going to be like God's. He knew exactly, exactly that he was selling out his rights and privileges to the devil. He was not deceived. But the woman was deceived. 
Well, then why did Adam do it if Adam wasn't deceived? Because the woman, he loved her so much, she was bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh. She was deceived. She submitted unto Satan, and she fell. And Adam was not deceived. He knew exactly what he was doing, but Adam loved that woman so much that he chose to be with her even if it meant eternal damnation, if it meant separation from God. In effect, he sacrificed himself for that woman that God had given him. Y'all see that? And this is some speculation on my part. You can't really say this authoritatively because you don't, you know, this, these ifs don't necessarily mean a whole bunch. But it is possible that if Adam had have retained his position and Eve had have done what she would have, that God would have wiped Eve out and have preserved Adam. Now, it's possible, and it's possible that Adam understood that, and therefore God, I mean, Adam saw that the only hope of that woman was for him to join in with her. That was the only hope that she ever had of getting any redemption because he knew that God might just do away with her if Adam had retained his position. But the point that I want you to see through this is that this is a perfect picture again of what Jesus has done for us. Jesus was not deceived. Jesus was not the sinner. Jesus was not the one that had made the problem. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. He came down here to this earth and he became what we were. He became sin. Jesus didn't die for sin just in principle. Did you know that? A lot of people think, well, he just in principle took sin into his own body. He didn't do it in principle. The Bible says out of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, that Jesus became sin for us. He did not take sin. He became sin. Jesus became a homosexual. He became a murderer, a thief, a liar, a cheat. Some people think, oh, brother, I can't believe you'd say that about Jesus. He didn't do it of his own, but he took that upon himself. And he went to hell and he paid for sins, brothers and sisters, just as if it was him. He became sin for us who knew no sin. It became a reality in his flesh. It was not something that he did in principle. When he went to hell, the Bible does say clearly out of Proverbs, I mean, Psalms chapter 16, Acts chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 4, that Jesus did go to hell. And when he went to hell, he didn't go to hell as God. He went to hell as a man who had the sin of the world upon him. Everybody see that? And he paid for that sin. He became one with us. Praise God. And that is the love that God has. The same kind of love that Adam had for Eve to the extent that he was willing to give up paradise. He is willing to give up his, his perfectness just to associate with her. Because he loved her so much. God loved us so much that the Lord Jesus was willing to leave glory, leave everything, and become what we were, sin, so that he could redeem us unto himself. Now, brothers and sisters, if God went to all of that expense, and if the Lord Jesus did all of those things, then do you think that he's going to love us less now that we've accepted that salvation? That's what we was talking about last night. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says, God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by faith, we shall be saved from wrath through him. If you can accept that he loved you while you were a sinner, much more now that you're born again, how much does he love you? How much is the Lord wanting to supply you need? It's not God that's let you slip. It's not God that's let you get in the financial bind. It's not God that hasn't healed your body. God is on your side. The Lord Lord is for you, but because we've allowed Satan to lie and deceive us and make us think that God is the one that has done these things, it's hindered this relationship of love. Faith works by love. Faith is the victory that overcometh the world. And if your love isn't functioning, your faith won't function. And your faith is what's got you into bondage because you haven't used it. 
It's been hindered. It hasn't been able to function because God's love has not flowed in us. I'd like for you to turn back to the book of Genesis again. And I want to show you something, what happened when sin entered. And I want to say that we won't probably have time to get into this very much today. I'm trying to save this for tonight when there's more people here because I believe that this is probably one of the most important things God ever, ever, ever showed me. It has set me free and set lots of people free. But how did God deal with Adam and Eve after they sinned? There's a lot of people today that teach, Brother, God can't fellowship with sin. God's wrath and judgment and punishment's got to come on sin. If you sin, God's going to break fellowship with you. The reason that you are having financial problems, the reason you've got sickness, is God's judging that sin in your life. God's put these things on you to teach you something, to improve you to do this or to do that. And those same people teach that, boy, Adam and Eve, once they blew it, God got upset with them. God was just and holy, and God ran them out of the Garden of Eden because God was holy and God could not fellowship with sin. That's not what the Scripture says at all. Did you know it? Right here out of Genesis chapter 3, we find where Adam and Eve sinned. The Lord came down, and the Lord cursed the serpent, the Lord cursed the woman, and the Lord cursed the man. Now, there was a judgment upon sin, but... How was this judgment? And also remember that this is before Jesus had made an atonement. This isn't a perfect parallel of what we've got because we now have an atonement made. Amen? So you do see some of the judgment of God come upon this sin, but it is not like a lot of people have taught that God just removed them from his presence. It says right here in Genesis chapter 3, in verse 22, The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Now, he's given you the reason why he kicked him out of the Garden of Eden. Therefore, the Lord God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. The Lord did not say that the reason he drove Adam and Eve out of the Garden was because he no longer could fellowship with them. He would not fellowship with an unholy vessel. That is not what God said. God said he did it for their benefit, lest they take of the tree of life and eat it and live forever. He didn't want those people living forever in a sinful, corrupted body. He had a better plan. He was going to come and redeem them. And he said right here in verse 15, he gave the promise of a Messiah coming, a virgin birth. He said that the seed of the woman... A child is never referred to anywhere else in the Bible as the seed of the woman. It's always the seed of a man because even science will tell you that a baby receives its blood, which the life is in the blood through the man. It receives the main part through the man. The man contributes that. It's called the seed of man, not the seed of a woman. This is the only time in Scripture, and the reason for it is the Lord Jesus was prophesying a virgin birth. Amen. Well, I like that. He gave the promise of it. He knew what he had planned, and he didn't want man living forever in a sinful body. He had something better planned. He saw the glorified body coming. He saw the new redemption, and so the Lord prophesied it, and he drove Adam and Eve out from the Garden of Eden for their benefit, not because he did not want to fellowship with them, and he would not fellowship with them, but so that they wouldn't eat of the tree of life and live forever. And you'll find in chapter 4 of the book of Genesis that God was still walking and talking with mankind. He did not quit walking and talking with them in the cool of the evening. He did not break off fellowship with Adam and Eve because of sin. We find in the fourth chapter, and I'll sum some of these things up, that Cain and Abel offered a sacrifice. Well, in the first place, 
How did they know to offer a sacrifice? Have you all ever thought of that? How did Cain and Abel know that they're supposed to be offering sacrifices? Who told them? See, we take some of these things for granted because we've read all the rest of the Old Testament and seen where God instituted sacrifices and offerings. Well, Adam and Eve, they didn't know those kind of things. Where'd they get it from? God was talking to them. God was still talking to them in an audible voice, and that's evident because after Cain had killed Abel, the Lord came and spoke, and he said, Cain, where's your brother Abel? Cain didn't get spooked or nothing. Now, you stop and think about this. If you were just walking through the field someday and the Lord spoke to you and said, Andy, where's your brother Ray? And if I said, well, I don't know. You know, I mean, that's not a very normal reaction if God was to speak to you out of heaven in a booming voice. Cain's reaction, he didn't think anything strange about it. He just lied, right? I mean, right to the face of the Lord. He was, it was pretty commonplace. The Lord speaking to him, he didn't think a thing strange about it. Why? Because God had still been communicating with man. That's where they learned about sacrifices. God was talking to them. God was speaking with them. God was still fellowshipping with mankind. And the Lord spoke to Cain, and Cain didn't even think a thing strange about it. And the Lord spoke back to him. Now notice, here's God speaking to a murderer. Still fellowshipping and talking with the murderer. And God didn't even rub Cain out. Did you know it? The Lord said, let's look down here in the fourth chapter. It says in verse um, 9, And the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. And now art thou cursed from the earth. Now, I want you to see a, a point here that God did not place this curse upon Adam. I mean, upon Cain right here. Cain was cursed from the earth. Now, some people say, well, God's the one that had to set it in motion. No, God set laws in motion. This earth was created to operate on love and on righteousness and holiness, not on sin. Sin perverts the things of God. And did you know, a lot of people don't understand this, but this passage of Scripture, and there's many others in the Word, show that even the natural forces of nature are controlled by righteousness or by sin. Sin affects them. It directly affects them. Right here, the Bible says that the ground was calling out. The blood was crying out from the ground. Now, some people think that that's just nothing but symbolism, but it's not so. Because Jesus said, look, these rocks would cry out if you won't praise me. The Bible talks about the trees and the hills skipping and clapping their hands. Did you know that even medical science today has found out that plants, they put electrodes and things on plants, and they have feelings. And they, I remember reading this one thing where they went in and monitored these group of plants, and they had one plant there that a guy went in and got that thing and just tore it to shreds. And did you know that the other plants went wild? Boy, all their graft just went wild. And then other people could walk into that room and everything was fine. But that guy who had torn those plants up would walk in and those plants would go wild. Do you know what? And even medical science has begun to prove that you can sit there and speak kindly to a plant and it'll respond. Do you know it? I even heard a deal where they said that your words directly affect your physical body. I, I heard a guy, um, I was listening to a tape, and he was talking about how medical science has come out and said that your body being tired or feeling strong or all of these things are directly related to your tongue. They've proven this, that what you say out of your mouth, your brain receives it, and your brain begins to bring to pass what you say in your physical body. And that's one of the new discoveries that they came out with. 
The Bible's been saying the same thing. You shall have what you say. And the same thing works. You're ministering either in life or death, even to a plant, even to inanimate objects. Do you know that when you go to praying for the weather, one of the hindrances that you have to fight over the weather is the sin of people. The sin of a region is directly responsible for the weather of a region. Are you all aware of that? Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14 says, If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves, pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. And as you read the next verse, he's talking specifically about rain coming in response to them repenting of their sin. Lack of rain, drought, and things like this are directly related to sin. Now, it's not the fact that God sits up there and sees the, everybody sinning and he says, I'm not going to send the rain. No, it's laws that God set down. God made for this earth to operate in love and on godly principles. And when we got out of love and we started operating in sin, the earth is rebelling at it. Did you know that speaking of the children of Israel, the Bible says that if you don't seek me and your sins multiply, then the land will spew you out. And it says that that's exactly what happened to the inhabitants that were before the children of Israel. The land spew them out. And you find that what he was talking about was that briars and thorns begin to multiply and overcome crops. Their crops fail because of the land. The briars and thorns multiply faster than their crops. And because of that, the animals begin to increase so that lions were overrunning the land and destroying mankind. And the inhabitants got spewed out because of those things. Why? Because of sin. Sin. Thorns and thistles, things like this, out of Genesis chapter 2 and chapter, chapter 3, are a direct result of sin. That was a part of the curse. Like things, for instance, like Mount St. Helens, volcano erupting. Some people think that that's God's judgment coming. Well, God can do things like that, but probably what that is is just the earth rev revolting at sin. The earth, it responds to uh, sin and it responds to righteousness. And the earth is responding to sin. Y'all see that? That doesn't mean that God sent that thing. God set laws in motion. When they get violated, they'll work against you. We use the example about gravity. Gravity is a law of God. It's meant for your good so that you can sit in that chair and not have to hold on and think hard about trying to stay in your chair. You use the law of gravity. It's a good thing. God gave it for good. But if you violate the law of gravity and if you try and jump out of a 747 jet five miles up, the law of gravity that God meant for good will kill you. And this is what happened. When man got out of God's laws and got to operating in sin, sin brings forth death in every area, even the physical realm, even the earth, even your ground. Your ground's related to sin. Did you know it? You can go out and speak life to your ground and receive a hundredfold return on it. And I know a lot of people that do that. Y'all must have been doing that. But you can go out and pray. We've had a garden, and I prayed over our garden. We planted a garden in Childress, Texas. And uh, my mother saw this, I think, but there's some people that could verify this, that, you know... Usually, uh, tomatoes come out in clusters of two or maybe three, you know, on, on one of those little buds. Well, ours, we never had less than seven in one cluster. Never. And I had people that had been farming for years and years and years come look at that. I had this one. We had to have people in the church come help me farm it because I couldn't take care of the thing. It was just a small, it wasn't even half the size of this deal. And we fed an entire church out of it. And people would come over and help me work it, and they'd look at that, and they just couldn't believe it. They could not believe what they saw. And it was prosperous. It beat what, you know, people, as far as 
we know today believed could happen. But brothers and sisters, things have degenerated from what they were. Did you know that when the children of Israel went into the land of Egypt that they got one cluster of grapes and had to put it on a pole in between two people to carry that? Are you aware of that? Two people had to put one cluster of grapes on a pole and carry it. And we're sitting here thinking about all of our great technology today. Boy, we're really increasing the harvest and things. Man, it is piddling little compared to what it started out being. Did you know that? And it's because of sin. Sin directly affects the agriculture, land, weather, climate, everything. So anyway, what I'm saying is that God didn't place this curse upon Cain and say from now on the earth isn't going to yield its fruit and stuff. No, the earth just began to revolt at sin. It says you're cursed from the earth and it won't yield its increase to you anymore. The Lord was just telling Cain, this is the way it is. This is what you've done. This is what you're reaping. This is the way it'll be from now on. In verse 12 it says, When thou tillest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee your strength. A fugitive and a vagabond shalt thou be in the earth. And Cain said unto the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. And the Lord, right in the midst of this, had mercy on a murderer. The first murderer had mercy on him, and he put a mark on his head so that nobody finding Cain would kill him. Because God said, I'll take vengeance on him if they do. God showed mercy. And I want you to notice... After the Lord had spoken all these things to him in verse 16, it says, And Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. God did not send Cain out. Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. If he left the presence of the Lord, he had to have had the presence of the Lord to have left it. God did not separate Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, from his company because he drove them out of the Garden of Eden. God was still fellowshipping with them, and God still would be talking to man face to face and dealing with them if man would receive it. Did you know it? He tried it again back when Moses came along. And he says, you sanctify yourself. Don't let any animals or any person touch this mountain for three days. And he said, at the end of the third day, I'm going to come down and speak unto my people. And the Lord came down in a cloud, and an audible voice of God began to come out of the cloud. And before he could even get his message spoken the people cried unto Moses and says don't let the Lord speak to us lest we all be consumed says we don't want to hear the voice of God you go hear his voice and you bring us word and tell us and Moses went and told the Lord what the people had said and the Lord said it's a good word that they've said he said that's the way it'll be God tried to speak unto man and man because of their sin couldn't abide a holy righteous God speaking unto him and man said don't let me do it Y'all see that? The point that I'm wanting to make is that man is the one that left the presence of God. Man is the one that has degenerated. God didn't put us in this state. It happened because we left the presence of God. Well, things have degenerated tremendously since that time. You know, people talk about, boy, all of our technology and look what we've approached unto. Did you, and, you know, they think that man started out in the Stone Age, living in caves. That's not true. Somebody said, well, are you knocking science? Well, if science knocks the Word of God, I'll knock science, amen. It's just the fact that science is trying to sit here and figure out the wisdom of God with their little peanut brain, and they just can't do it. They don't take God into account. I've used this example before, but, you know, they sit here and say that, boy, the, the evolution, you know, proves that the earth has to be 600 billion years old or whatever, and the Bible says that since the fall of Adam, it's been less than 10,000 years. How do you reconcile the two? Well, I say the Word of God's right and they're wrong. But you see, they say, but look at all this geological stuff. It proves it. Well, did you know if you'd have been there on the day of creation when God created the great big old sequoia trees, 
And if a science had have come on the scene five minutes after God created that squash tree, did you know he didn't create it from a seed? He created it full grown. He had to, or Adam wouldn't have had anything to eat for seven years until all those seeds came up. God created it full grown. And if a scientist had to come along and cut down that tree and counted the rings, he said, this is proof. This tree's been here at least 2,000 years. That is scientific proof. All that proved was he didn't take into account that God could have created it that way in the first place. They find this oil and say, here's scientific proof. This oil took millions and millions of years to form. All that proves is that they don't take into account God could have put it there in the first place, amen, created it that way. Well, look at this erosion and stuff. It proves that these mountains have been eroding away for millions of years. All that proves is that they didn't take into account that God thought it was pretty that way and made it that way, created it to look that way when it was brand new, amen. That doesn't mean anything except that people just are a long ways behind God. Do you know it? And then they come along and say, but man, look at all these people that lived in the uh, caves. They didn't even know about the wheel. They didn't know about this and know about that. You look at Cain's civilization right here in the fourth chapter of the book of Genesis. And it says in verse 16 that Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bare Enoch. And he builded a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. And unto Enoch was born Irad, and Irad beget all of these guys. And anyway, it goes on and talks about it. And Lamech took unto him two wives, and the name of the one was Adan, the name of the other was Zillah. And Ada bare Jabel. He was the father of such as dwell in tents. Now follow this. They're saying they started out in caves. They started out dwelling in tents right here. Amen. About the third generation from Adam. And, and of such as had cattle. Well, man, cattle, domesticating cattle and things like that is supposed to have happened, I mean, millions of years after man had started developing. They started out this way. See it? And his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of such as handled the harp and organ. Well, the musical instruments were supposed to be way on down in development. But here they started out with harps and organs. And then it says, And Zillah, she also bare Tublicon, an instructor of every artificer in brass and iron. Now, brass and iron is supposed to be way up not very long before the time of Christ, according to what um, uh, scientists say. And here it is starting out, working brass and iron. And you can go on and read about this, but nearly everything that they say didn't come until, you know, the great awakening and all of these kind of things, man started out that way. Man's degenerated, did you know it? The cave dwellings and stuff came after man began to gent degenerate and uh, sin multiplied on the face of the earth. Man degenerated into that state. They didn't evolve from that state. Y'all see that? Praise God. Brothers and sisters, the Word of God's true, not what somebody else says about the Word of God. You just need to stick with the Word. But anyway, the point that we were making, get back where we were, is that God did not just break off fellowship with us because of sin. Man left the presence of God, and God honored our decision. Man did not enjoy the presence of God. They didn't like the things of God. They liked their own inventions, and God allowed man to get in that shape. The Lord is still walking, talking fellowship with you today, you know, if you'd receive it, if you'd believe for it. Amen? Praise God. That's true. The Lord did not break fellowship with us over sin, things like that. Now, some of you are saying, well, brother, there's got to be a payment on sin. What are you saying about sin? You're going to have to come back tonight. I'm not going to get into that because we're going to probably spend the rest of all of these sessions dealing with how does God deal with sin because, see, this is the whole crux of the whole thing. There could be no hatred if it wasn't for sin. 
Most people understand that. The wages of sin is death. And so, if we could believe that we had no sin, if we could believe that we per were perfect, that we had never done anything wrong, then I think people would be free to receive the love of God. But the hindrance is we all know that we've blown it. We all know that we've fallen short. And therefore, we come under condemnation feeling like God can't dwell with me, God won't fellowship with me because of sin. And it comes through a lot of misconceptions, just like what we've been talking about Adam and Eve. Now, there was a judgment on sin, but it wasn't God withdrawing from them, God not fellowshipping with them, things like that. And it's important that you start understanding God's proper perspective and viewpoint on sin for a New Testament believer. And if you'll understand this, what it'll do, it'll open up to the love of God. Amen. And once the love of God begins to flow, then it'll start flowing through you and out of you towards other people. Faith will begin to work. And you can start seeing some mighty miraculous things happen. Amen. One last uh, thing I want to draw out of this before we quit this morning and, and come back tonight is that if you'll remember Jamie, the Lord ministered this to Jamie not long ago, and it's really blessed me. We're again taking the example about Adam and Eve, the physical relationship, and comparing it back unto the Father in the spiritual realm, because that's exactly what Ephesians chapter 5 is talking about. Adam chose to love Eve, and even to the extent of losing everything he had just to be with her. That's the way that the Lord Jesus has done us. And notice also that when Cain killed Abel, did you know that Adam, if he had been operated in a, in a carnal type of love the way that most people are, he could have turned around to Eve and he would have said, you're the one that's at fault. If it hadn't have been for you, Cain would not have killed my son Abel. Can you all think about that? Can you imagine how he could have turned around and he says, you're the one that caused this. Look what you've done. And he would have been right in doing it because she was the one that brought it. You all see that? And yet there is no example of that whatsoever. Now that's the way that God's kind of love is too. The Lord could turn around and say, you're the one to blame. Look what you've done. And yeah, you are guilty. But God doesn't impute our trespasses unto us, is what the Scripture says out of Second Corinthians chapter 5. God isn't sitting there placing the blame on you. If Adam had that much kind of love, and the Scripture gives us no indication whatsoever to think that Adam turned, turned on Eve because of these things, that he divorced her. Man, if anybody, you know people talk about, but my rights have been violated. I got rights for divorce. If anybody ever had rights for divorce, don't you think Adam had them? Well, I mean, if anybody ever was justified in getting divorced, Adam was justified. And Adam didn't even consider divorce because you know what? It never occurred to him. It took thousands of years before, before Satan could get into this world system, all of his doubt and unbelief concerning marriage and divorce and multiple marriages and all these kind of things. Adam just didn't consider it. He realized that that was bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. How could he put her away? Isn't that something? And that's the way that God is with us. Brothers and sisters, this isn't something that God's just done on paper. We are bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh. God's not going to divorce you because you've blown it. When you fall and stub your toe, God doesn't fall off his throne. Amen. God doesn't get upset. God loves you. And he does not change in his attitude. He is not going to divorce you from his power and from his anointing and from his ability. And if you ever really understand that, I tell you, it'll set you free from so much doubt and unbelief. You won't fall prey to Satan lying to you and telling you that God won't do it for you. You'll know better because you know and you've experienced the love of God. Amen? Well, that's good. I tell you, if you got a third of what we talked about this morning, you got a lot to chew on for a long time. That is the end of the Friday morning service, and now this is the beginning of Friday evening, August the 29th, 1980.
What we're going to talk about tonight is about sin, how sin, God's attitude towards sin in a believer's life. And the reason that I think that this is so important when you start talking about love is because we believe that God can love somebody who's perfect. You know, we don't have much trouble with God. We're believing that God is love and that God can learn love certain people. There's a lot of people that come up to me and they say, well, I believe God loves you because look what you've done. Well, you don't live in me all the time. Everything I do isn't good, amen. I don't get anything from God according to what I've done, or I wouldn't get very much. But some people, they put some certain people in the category of being a super saint, and they think that these people, you know, they got a corner on God and that God will do something for them. They can understand how God could love them. But I'd say that most people can't accept the fact that God loves them unconditionally. Why? Because you live with yourself and you know every last failure, every last problem, all of the sins that you've committed and things like that. The Bible says that the heart knoweth his own bitterness and a stranger intermeddleth not therewith. You know your own bitterness. You know your own mistakes, your own sadness. You know who you really are. And so it's hard for us to receive God's love because of the sin and the failures in our life. And the whole basis of this is that, you see, we haven't really learned how God's love is. We've taken what the world considers love, and we somehow or another have that impression that God's love is that way. And in the world system, if you, if you cross somebody, they're going to cross you. In the world system, it's an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, hand for hand and foot for foot. Boy, you do somebody wrong, they're going to turn around and they're going to get even with you. And somehow or another, that's translated into our relationship with God. And most people don't understand that God's love is not that way. And one of the things that has hindered this is our religious teaching and preaching against sin. Now, tonight I'd like to put it into perspective because it's evident that God does hate sin. Amen. God does hate sin. The Bible says that the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. And we are supposed to hate sin. And yet, how does this reconcile with the love of God? If God hates sin, and if sin is deadly and all of these kind of things, how could any of us experience the love of God? Because we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And you know, some people try and justify themselves, and the Bible says that we comparing ourselves among ourselves, we are not wise. It's not wise for you to sit here and compare yourself with somebody else. But this is what a lot of people do, and a lot of religious people, the reason they preach sin, man, that if you sin, God won't fellowship with you, God won't touch you, won't have anything to do with you. The reason they do that is because they don't see how sinful they are. There's a lot of people, man, that preach holiness, and, and I'm going to put some of these things in perspective, okay? Don't walk out on me until you hear the whole thing. But some people, boy, they would scream and shout, and I've seen them pound on the pulpit and scream about holiness, holiness. Without holiness, no man shall see God. I agree, but whose holiness? Your holiness or God's holiness? You can't live holy enough to see God on your own merits. Yes, it's true that we have to have holiness, but that's what Jesus came to do is to produce holiness in us. It's Jesus' holiness that we're getting things from God through. Somebody said, Brother, I believe that you've got to live a holy life, and you've got to do this and this and this before God will bless you. Well, if you really believe that, you can look in James chapter 2, verse 10. And that scripture says, If you keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, you are guilty of all. If you don't murder, if you don't steal, if you don't commit adultery, yet if you have strife in your heart, if you've ever been angry without a cause, brothers and sisters, you're guilty of murder, you're guilty of adultery, you're guilty of breaking every law that God ever made. Y'all see that? That's pretty serious, if that was all there was to it. 
But I, the point I want you to make is a lot of people think, you know, that, well, God, they think that God's going to grade on a curve. Actually, what it amounts to is they say, if God compares me to this person, well, surely I'm as good as she is. Amen. And I'm going to make it. Well, God demands perfection. And unless you're perfect, you won't make it. Unless you trust somebody who was perfect, namely the Lord Jesus. Amen. And we've got to start realizing, some people that stand up there and preach holiness and, man, you've got to live holy or God won't give anything to you. You say, well, what do you mean by holy? Well, you can't dip or cuss or chew or go with those who do, amen? You can't do any of these kind of things. That's what a lot of people consider holiness. But did you know that if you don't have love for your brother the way that you should, if you've been critical, if you've ever spoken against somebody, you're just as guilty of all of those things. Now, when you look at it that way, did you know even the people that are shouting holiness the loudest? aren't perfect and they're guilty of breaking the law of God and brothers and sisters they're putting themselves out of fellowship with God and they may live holy for a while they may do okay but the Bible says out of first John chapter 1 that if any man says that he has not sinned he's a liar and the truth isn't in him and he's talking to believers he's not talking to lost people believers fall short did you know it we aren't perfect yet there's bumper stickers you see it says Christians aren't perfect they're just forgiven amen we aren't perfect yet. We're all still falling short. And what happens, the reason so many people are living an up and down life is when they're living good and when they can't see all of the sin and the rottenness in their life, when it looks like they're doing pretty good, well then, man, they're able to believe that God's going to bless them. God's going to answer my prayer because I've been living holy and I hadn't gone out and gotten a fight with anybody. My wife and I hadn't been arguing lately. And therefore, you believe God's going to answer your prayers. You're able to walk on the mountain. But then, sooner or later, you're going to fall short. You're going to mess up. And when you do, you lower yourself a notch. Well, at least I'm not as bad as I was, but you don't have as total confidence that God's going to answer your prayers. And after a while, you begin to get lower and lower until finally you get in the valley. And when you get in the valley, you get so miserable and so pitiful that even though you believe that God doesn't like your sin and God's disfellowshipped with you and God's not answering your prayers because of what you've done, you get so miserable that you know that God, even a mean God, is bound to be able to pardon you as miserable and pitiful as you feel. And so you pour it all out on the Lord and ask the Lord to forgive you and believe that, man, as miserable as I am, surely God's going to forgive me. And you get it off and you get right back on the mountain. And you go until you start messing up again. And if you've got a mountaintop and valley experience, it's because you're basing your relationship with God on your works and on how good you're living. Amen or oh me. That's the truth, whether you all shake your head yes or no. That's true. If your relationship is up and down, it's not, it's not based on Jesus because the Bible says that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And one of the keys in the Christian life is learning how to live and receive from God on the basis of who Jesus is, not on the basis of who I am because I'm not going to get much from God on the basis of who I am. Amen? Everybody follow that? Now, I've still got some questions. Well, let's go into this and answer some of these questions. When you get born again, you become a new creature in Christ Jesus. Let's look in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Now, we're going to be covering a lot of ground tonight, and I'd encourage you that if, uh, if it's hard for you to get all of this, get a tape and go back over it. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. This is talking about when you get born again, when you confess Jesus as your Lord, you become a new creature. Which part of you gets saved? Your spirit man. We're always talking about, man, I came to see a soul saved. Well, you don't see a soul saved when a person gets born again. You see a spirit saved. Amen? 
Now, I'm not going to be nitpicking with somebody over your terminology. Somebody told me tonight, boy, it's really a blessing when you see somebody's soul get blessed. Well, you know, that's true. You do get, have soul salvation, according to James chapter 1, and your soul does get blessed. But what most people are talking about is your spirit man. Your spirit man's a part of you that gets changed. Now, you can verify that because it says that when you're in Christ Jesus, old things passed away, behold, all things have become new. Did your old body pass away? No, you still got the same body. Sad to say, most of us would have liked to have got a new body when we got born again, wouldn't we? But it doesn't work that way. You didn't get a new body, and you didn't get a new mind up here. It's not your mind that got changed. It's your spirit, man. There's a part of you called the spirit, and it's right here in your belly. The Bible says out of your belly shall flow rivers of living water. Amen? Right here in your belly is where your spirit resides. Praise God. Some of you thought I was going to say that, didn't you? I say that every time. I always say some of us look like we got more of the spirit than others, but that's not true. <laughs> This is the end of tape number two in the Love Series. This message of Friday evening will be continued on tape number three. We hope that your heart has been quickened by hearing the Word of God through this message. Remember, Andrew Womack Ministries operates a helpline that you can call for prayer and information at 719-635-1111. We have a ministry website at www.awmi.net and you can write the ministry at P.O. Box 3333, Colorado Springs 80934. Until next time, we pray that you will reach out by faith and receive everything that is yours through God's grace.